Well, I think it is the cry of our heart, but I'm not certain if it's the call on our life for some of us, or many of us, as we struggle. If you go, I'll go, Lord, but I'd prefer if you stay that I could stay. I'll move, Lord, but I would prefer if I didn't have to sacrifice too much. We find ourselves today as we travel along in the Minor Prophets at a very critical juncture in their situation. If we've been paying attention and following along historically, we know that last time we got together with around Habakkuk, we heard of the amazing thing that was going to happen that no one could have imagined as Syria had been dominating the region and, and God had, had, had declared that Babylon would would take over the whole of the area. And, and so it happened in Habakkuk's time, around 605 B.C. And between Habakkuk and Haggai, we've got a lot of years that have gone, th- gone on. By 587 B.C., all of Israel was exiled out of Jerusalem, out of, out of the land of Israel, and taken off in exile to Babylon. Around um, the time of 538, 539 B.C., Persia defeated Babylon and now occupied the whole area. You can pick this up in Ezra. The history of what we're going to talk about today is found in Ezra, where Cyrus does this amazing thing. He, um, He invites whoever wants to go back to Jerusalem of the people of Israel to go back. This is 539 B.C. He wants them to do one specific thing. Go back and build your, rebuild your temple. Now this is mind-boggling. That a pagan king dominating the land would invite Israel to go back and rebuild God's house. Why would he do that? Well, because God prompted him, obviously, to do it by the amazing grace of God. But... But in his motivation, it would have been for political reasons, for political success. He would have come to the conclusion, I presume, that if he sent people back to their lands and invited them to build their temples, that their gods would be happy with him. And the best thing to do is get all the gods to be happy with you. You don't want any gods to be upset with you when you're a pagan king who worships multiple gods. And so they went back, 538 or 539 B.C. And they went with one commission. With joy in their hearts, I would presume, go back to Jerusalem, go back home, rebuild God's house. Eighteen years later, the house of God is still not built. And today, we want to look at the reasons why. Our Father and our God... I pray that you would help us as we embark again upon this prophecy that uh, once again we find ourselves uh, realizing that it is applicable to our date. It's as if you're writing again to 2018. So Father, I pray that you would help us in application to pay attention to our own lives and to, to read our own lives into this text and realize, oh God, that you weren't just talking to Israel, you're talking to us. So would you help us, Father, to pay careful attention to what you have for us in your word today? For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. If you, want, if you have your Bibles, and I know you do, please turn to Haggai this morning. It's the third last of the minor prophets. Haggai. We want to... Um, recognize that God has something to say to us today about building God's house in a time of spiritual frustration. Now, when I talk about, or when the Bible talks about building God's house, we get all kinds of vision, vision differences among us, I'm sure. In the time of Haggai, this is to go and rebuild the temple. The temple was God's house, literally God's house. God, although he lived in heaven and uh, he lived in the temple. He actually, his presence was in the temple. That's what he c- could call it, his house. 
But as we're transferring this now into the New Testament application, because that's who we are, we have to understand that the, the implications and the, uh, the commands that come out of this in terms of rebuilding God's house have a different application for us. For them, it was to go back and build bricks and mortar, to build the actual temple of God. But when God talks to us about building the house of God to rebuild the temple or to build the temple of God in a New Testament context, is talking about building the church of Jesus Christ. And it's not talking about bricks and mortar. Regularly, pastors love to haul this particular minor prophet out when they're starting a building program. This is a classic. And I'm not suggesting for one second that it doesn't have application for that because when we're talking about building God's house or the church of Jesus Christ, there are certainly physical uh, applications. Part and parcel of building and advancing the church of Jesus Christ includes meeting places like this resourcing of advancing the kingdom of Christ. But when we're talking primarily, the primary application of this text today for us is about reaching our neighbors for Jesus Christ. When God tells us to go and build his house, in this context now, the temple of the living God, he's talking about reaching, uh, reaching your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, your family for Jesus Christ. Because we People are the temple of the living God. In the New Testament context, once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the dwelling place of God moved from the temple to the people of God. So when we talk about God's house now, we're really looking at each other. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're God's house. God dwells in you. This really isn't the house of God. This is the gathering place of the house of God. We throw around that terminology, and I, I know you know, you've heard this so many times, but, but I still think sometimes we forget that the church building is not the church. The people who are gathered in here this morning are the church of Jesus Christ. Wherever the people of God are, that's where the church is. And when we gather here on a Sunday, it's the church. When you're not here throughout the week, this is just a building. We are the church of the living God. So when we're talking here about God building his church, we're talking about reaching people for Christ. So here we have this people of God that are given this amazing gift of God's grace to go back and go back home and rebuild their temple. It's an amazing assignment that they've been given and uh, we have this prophet by the name of Haggai who has a four-month ministry his ministry begins August 29th 520 BC and completes on December 18th 520 BC he preaches three sermons and that's it can you imagine? That's his ministry. That's, that's his thing. But this is a, an incredible four-month run. I mean, if you have to only have a four-month run in ministry, this is it. If you can only preach three sermons in your whole life, these are the three sermons you want to preach. And so I'm going to take these three sermons today and make them into one sermon with three points. And that's going to be uh, our lesson for today. What what? happens when we become satisfied worshiping among the ruins they had come back and for 20 years they had come to the place where they, they didn't get around to building the temple and they'd become accustomed to the fact that they could worship the living God among all the rubble it didn't really matter and and regularly that's how our hearts start to settle as well I've been living on my street for 17 years and, and uh, I can honestly say that, that I, I think there might be one other believer on my whole street. And, and it, it troubles my heart as I, as, I, as I dug deeply into this text and realized what it was meaning. It troubles my heart that I become comfortable worshiping the living God in my street among the rubble around me. 
And I don't mean that in an, in an uncompassionate way or anything. You, you know what I'm saying. I'm talking about people who don't know Jesus. I'm talking about people with ruined lives. I'm talking about people who are dead in their trespasses and their sins. Uh, we, we, uh, we get all choked up about a tragedy that occurred in Humboldt, uh, Saskatchewan, and rightly so. What a horrible tragedy happened yesterday. But we don't tragically see the walking dead around us. That they're, the, they're in the same condition, they just haven't perished yet. And we need to understand that we've become comfortable, even as Calvary Baptist Church, we've been comfortable worshiping the living God and all the ruined lives around us. And so for 20 years, they've done nothing about it. And that's the context we find ourselves in. So there's three reasons that, that pop out here that the Lord talks about. In fact, he gives three sermon responsibilities to Haggai, and, and he sets the agenda. And, and the first is found here. Let's look at the text. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, this is an amazing text because it's so clearly laid out for us historically. We know it's August 29th, 520 B.C. And, it, and it's spoken through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now, I want to stop there for a second. Fourteen times in this text, the term the Lord Almighty is used. This is a very small section, two small chapters of the Bible. Fourteen times, the Lord Almighty. You know, here are the, here's these people. They haven't been doing what they're called to do. They've been, there's reasons. We're going to look at them. And God just showers upon this prophecy. Hey! I'm the Lord Almighty. There is no one greater, no person greater in all the universe. I'm speaking to you. I'm giving you my authority. I'm talking to you. I'm commanding you. I'm telling you I will be with you. I'm telling you I will resource you. I'm telling you I will help you. I'm the Lord Almighty. I just put it on Cyrus's heart to send you back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Is there anything too hard for me? That's how it starts. I mean, that's a great salvo to, to begin a couple of sermons. The Lord Almighty. Says, who says so? The Lord Almighty. I mean, you know, doesn't that kind of end it? Oh, okay. Okay, the Lord Almighty's saying it. All right, well, let's listen. These people say, to the Lord Almighty, uh, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. I want to pause there. Five times. And this kind of a theme that goes through this text. Give careful thought to your ways. Loved ones, please make this very personal today. It's critical that you make this text very personal today. Don't look around. Don't, don't be thinking this is for someone else. I, I'm glad, I'm glad they're, are they here? Well, I'm glad they're here. This is very personal today. Give careful thought to your ways. Five times throughout this text, that very same phrase comes up. What are we to give careful thought about? You had planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. So what's going on here? Why in the world, first of all, are they not getting on with this project? I think it's easy for us to see, verse 2, uh, they don't want, really want to work this hard. They don't really want to sacrifice this much. Why wouldn't we get on with what God has given us to do? It's because deep down inside, we don't really like what the command is. 
Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me wherever I ask you to go. Where you go, I'll go. Where you move, I'll move. What you ask me to do, I'll do. Who you ask me to talk to, I'll talk to. I don't want to work that hard. I don't want to sacrifice that much. And so I start to make excuses, just like they did. Well, Lord, we understand about the project, but it's not time. It's not the right time. I mean, I, Lord, I understand about the, the Great Commission. I agree with it 100%. Go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them whatsoever, to, to, whatsoever I've commanded you. Yeah, I, I'm all over the Great Commission, Lord. But the economy, I mean, if we're, if we're going to pull out all the stops at our church here and pay it, look at the economy. It's not very good. The, 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 uh, I mean, maybe we should be a little more conservative on the budget. It's not really, it's not time, Lord. Sure, yes, of course I believe in witnessing. But Lord, you you need to understand. There's a strategy to this. And it's not the right time at work. I mean, I I know they don't know the Lord, and I know I haven't mentioned anything to them, but but it's just not the right time. I'm waiting for the right timing. You know, if they would just ask me, I'll, I'll, I'll be there, Lord. It's not the right time, though. Yes, Lord, I, I know about generous investing in the kingdom of God and the advancing the kingdom of God. It's, but Lord, it's, it's, it's not the right time for me to get involved in that. I, I've just upsized my house. So I'm, I'm with you. I, I agree. That's what we should be doing. But, but it's not the right time for me. Well, I'm flattered, Lord, that you should notice my giftedness. And thank you for having someone come and invite me to serve in the church. I mean, I'm flattered, to be honest, but it's not the right time for me. I mean, I I got serious work commitments, Lord. And, and I, I need more family time. I haven't, been, I haven't been doing much with my family. And, Lord, you know that we're a sports family, and we, we've got a lot of things going on. We've got, we got to drag kids around. Like, I'd like to serve in the ministry, but it's not the right time. I, I was reading a writer this week who said, why is it that church has to be convenient while we'll sacrifice anything for the kids in the sports programs. Why is that? I'll tell you what's going on here. We need, just like they need, to re-examine our convictions so we can deal with our inverted priorities. God says, time, verse 4, is it time for you, yourselves? Literally, the verse goes, is it time for you, you, you to be living with a nice fancy roof over you while my house remains roofless? I mean, what's the message that you're sending to me? That's what God is asking the question. I mean, you're looking after your own house. You're looking after your own things. Now, now go up, he says in verse 8, into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. I mean, look, at you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. Uh, what you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, because of your inverted priorities. There is something that works its way throughout all of the scriptures, and it is this. God must be first in your life. It, it, began, it began early. It, it shows up in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then we make a journey into the New Testament. And Jesus comes out and says, Seek first your job. Seek first your family. Seek first your recreation. Seek first your sports programming. Now, what does Jesus say? Seek first. It's interactive. The kingdom of God. So you do know. 
and his righteousness and family, work, rest, enjoyment will all be added to you. Isn't that what it says? All these things will be added to you. It runs throughout the scriptures. And so God is pointing out to them, the reason this thing is sitting around for 18 years is because your priorities are inverted. You guys are all about you and not about me. And I liberated you from Persia and sent you home. I liberated you from Egypt. I rescued you. I rescued you out of the hands of the Babylonians. I rescued you now out of the hands of Persia. With one assignment. Build my church. Build my church. Build my house. Is it time for you to be lavishing attention on yourself while God's work limps along? And let's examine the results of your priority choice issues. Look at them. You planted a whole bunch, but you harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but they're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in purses with holes in them. Let's face facts here. You work like crazy, and there's rising prices all around you. There's longer work hours. There's inflation. There's low yield. What's quite ironic here is that the earth, the heavens and the earth obey the Lord, but his people aren't. I blew away your stuff, he says in verse 9. Because the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I, I called for the drought in the fields and the mountains and the, the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle and on labor of your hands. I called for a drought and guess what? The heavens obeyed me because I'm the Lord Almighty. The only thing in this universe that isn't obeying me is my people, God says. You know that you have inverted priorities when you start to make excuses for not serving the Lord. Not making yourself fully available to Him. Because people who don't feel guilty don't make excuses, yes? Lord, it's not time. I would. I mean, when it's the right time, like, I'm all in. You can count on me, Lord, when it's the right time. Because I've got excuses as to why now isn't the right time. You know what's really great? And I pray this for us today. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed. That's good, isn't it? That's fantastic. The vo- they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. By the way, it's important that we understand this, this word remnant. These are not rebels. They, these are not the people that often have been prophesied toward about the discipline of God. These are God's crack troops. These are the elite. These are the ones who love God. These are the people who are in the right place, the the right people in the right place at the right time for the right reason. That's who they are. They are us. They are the people who gather on Sunday and worship, but they just kept worshiping among the ruins and getting comfortable doing it because it didn't cost them anything. So they obeyed. The message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I'm with you. You obey the Lord, he's going to be with you. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. The spirit of the whole remnant of the people. God's spirit came alive among them when they obeyed the Lord. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty 
their God on September 21st, 520 B.C. It's pretty good. 22 days, 23 days, and they're working. So they worship. And uh, they busy themselves starting on the work, and then God sends Haggai Sermon 2. Sermon 2 is on October 17th, 520 B.C. It's uh, less than a month from when they started working. Because see, here's what happens. God challenges you, and you say, yes, I will serve. And so you diligently plow into it, and you start working and serving God. And all of a sudden, you realize there's hassles and trouble and opposition. There's little thanks or not as much thanks as you think you should get. Nobody's patting you on the back. There's not a lot of encouragement going your way because you're working in some obscure spot and nobody's noticed. And the progress seems small. The results are, are frustrating. They're meager and disappointing. Lord God, I've been, I've been up and down the street trying to lead people to the Lord. Been knocking on doors. Been talking to people. I, you know, I, I signed up for this a month ago, Lord, and I started talking to the people at work. I'm, I'm talking to my family. I'm telling them about Jesus. And nothing's happening. Very little's happening. And then I meet another dude who walks into the church. He's like, five for five. I talked to five people this week and five got saved. It's like, what's with that? I've talked to 25 people. And I think the only thing I led to the Lord was the cat next door. <laughs> At least I want to believe the cat took the track. And we start comparing. We start comparing ministries. We start getting frustrated. Lord, God, you called me to this and I signed up and I'm, I'm all in. I'm digging in. And what's happening? Uh, so the Lord, he always gets in front of this kind of stuff for us. Look what he does. He says, here's the sermon I'm giving you, Haggai. I'm going to even give you the title, verse 3. The title is going to be this. Small temple, eh? Question mark. Because it's Canadian context. So God established the title for us. Small temple, eh? Because you see, they looked at the footings, and, and they remembered Solomon's temple, and you know, they were like, okay, if we're going to build a temple, let's build a temple. Let's build something spectacular, and, and God gives them the dimensions, and they lay out the footings, and they realize this thing is pathetic. It's like a woodshed. It's like, this is no temple. I remember the gold and the silver and Solomon's splendor. And the nations would come and they would look at it and think, this is spectacular. What in the world is going on, Lord? And so God realizes they're becoming discouraged. He says, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? And there's some of the old people they step for. We saw it. And this is nothing like what we saw. How does it look to you now? It looks like nothing. That's how it looks. Does it seem like nothing? Yes. And then he systematically goes through Zerubbabel, Jehoshaphat, or Joshua, and the people. Be strong, verse 4. Be strong. Be strong. For I am with you. Now, what's the deal here? How can we get ourselves into trouble and, uh, and quit? Because see, if, if you get discouraged, if, if you get discouraged because 
you haven't got enough thanks, you haven't got enough encouragement, or it looks, the results are meager, or you're frustrated, you're comparing your, your project to someone else, your ministry project to someone else's, and, and over there in, in Pickering, like, it's really, it's, it's going like crazy. What's going on here? The possibility is you have made the mission the mission. You say, what are you talking about? It is highly possible for us when we sign up to serve the living God that we make the, our service and the ministry the end instead of the means to the end. You see, what God wants here from us is found in, in, in verse 8. Go up in the mountains in, in chapter 1, bring down temper, timber, build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. That I might be honored. Our, our, our discouragement can come from the fact that, that our motivation might be in the wrong direction, that we might have misplaced passion. That, that it's possible that we might be doing the right thing for the wrong reason. That we might be making it all about the right thing instead of our Savior, the right God. That we might be mistaking the glory of the work for the glory of the Lord. You see, the Lord goes on to say to them, look, at, I, I, I'm, I brought you out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you, verse 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the desired of all the nations will come. By the way, um, Mr. Handel, who uses this in Messiah, the desired uh, is plural here. Uh, is, this isn't, I think, referring to Christ. This is referring to us. This Haggai and the people are told here, look at this, this meager house of God is, is a, 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 a part of redemption history. It, it's not the end. It's not the be-all and end-all. Our ministry, our mission, our little contribution isn't the big deal. Jesus Coming again is the big deal. We are a little step in redemption history. We're a little bit of redemption history. And he says to the people here in Haggai's time, look at the desired of all nations will come. You have no idea what's coming from this temple. You have no idea that my vision, God's vision, is that the nations are going to come and be part of God's house. You could have never imagined. This, I, I'm, I'm done with Israel. I'm moving on to bigger and, and more amazing things, God says. This is, this is, I'm going to fill this house with glory. I'm going to make something special out of this. The glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Do not mistake the size of this. In redemption history, it's all about the glory of God. You obey. You be faithful. You step forward. You keep your vision on Jesus, not on thanksgiving and not on back, back slapping and encouragement and, and comparing your ministry with someone else's ministry and your results with someone else's results. You look for the glory of God. That's the ministry. You do your part. Never allow the glory of the work to become more important than the glory of the Lord. I'm telling you, this was a really important thing for me as I wrestled with this. Because pastors are always comparing. That's what we do. I go on social media now. What did they get over at that church on Easter? Hey, Lord, how come you gave them 500 more and you only gave us 300 more? Something wrong with us? Maybe. Yes, maybe. There's certainly something wrong with that. Was God glorified? That's what matters. That's always what matters. Is God honored in the symbol of his presence? Why was it so important for, for, that God would send them back to rebuild his house? Does God need a place to live? <laughs> I mean, seriously, does he? Help me. Does God need a place to live? He doesn't need a place to live. 
The temple was the symbol of the presence of Almighty God in this world. God sent his people back there to rebuild that temple so that that it would be noted that God is not out of business. And the church of Jesus Christ, it's not about the size, it's about the glory of God. It's about us being the bride of Christ, telling people in the world that God lives, that he's alive, that he saves people, he rescues people, he takes people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and makes them alive, that we serve a living God, that we are the symbol of the presence of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the awesome bride of Christ, is a symbol to the world that God is not out of business. And it bothers me, I don't know if it bothers you, I know it bothers you. It bothers me that the symbol of God's business is shrinking in Canada. It bothers me that the church of Jesus Christ is getting smaller in Canada instead of larger in Canada. Because I believe with my whole heart that God has put it on all of our hearts that my church should be bigger in Canada. That I want my house to be built in Canada. I want more expanded kingdom, more symbol that I'm in business, that I'm to be glorified in Canada. Big or small, the glory is not in the ministry. It's in having the presence of God. He says, listen, you've got me. You obey me, you've got me. The Holy Spirit's among you. And I will make this thing glorious. I own all the silver and all the gold. You're thinking of Solomon's grand temple with gold and silver. Have you forgotten who I am? If I wanted to have every last ounce of gold and every last, I guess, ounce of silver, are they measured the same? I could bring all of it and bring it right here. I'm the Lord Almighty. So, let's, be, let's understand that God encourages us if our sight lines are on the glory of God and not in the glory of our work or ourselves. There's a final sermon. It was delivered on December 18th, 520 B.C., verse 10 and following. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? And the priests answered, no. In other words, he says, if somebody is carrying something clean, ceremonially clean, and it touches things that aren't clean, do those things that it touches become clean? And the answer is, no. How did you know? If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? And the answer is, (laughs) you're hesitating. You have your Bibles open. The answer is yes. In other words, if something dirty touches something that is uh, clean, does it become dirty? And the answer is yes. So what in the world is he asking him to preach this sermon for? He can continue on in verse 14. So it is with this people. This nation... And this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this. Here's the problem. First of all, they had not been building 
because they were, didn't want to put that much effort into it. It wasn't the right time as far as they were concerned. Secondly, they were about to be discouraged because of the size of the project. And so they weren't building. Thirdly, the reason that building is not progressing is because they're dirty. God's remnant is dirty. And they're thinking that, well, if we, if we engage in God's project, we'll become clean because, because we're serving God. So surely he'll overlook the sins that we've been accommodating in our lives. The stuff we've been bringing with us all our lives. The, the little sins that we think are little sins anyway, that, that we are, are harboring, that we are treasuring in our life. We'll bring them along. And surely God will give us a pass because we're serving Him. And God says, no. And every mother who's ever cleaned any clothes knows that you can't make a dirty, dirty clothing clean by rubbing it against clean clothing. When you rub dirty clothing against clean clothing, ladies, what happens? you got two pieces of dirty clothing. And so it is in the work of God. Just because you're doing some action does not clean you up. So the, 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 the urgency here is that um, we all need, when we're coming to obey God, to reassess our cleanliness. We need to deal with our mission fitfulness. The question is whether or not God, whether or not we find ourselves blessable. Look at, look at, let's continue. Verse 15. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, they were only t there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all of the work of your hands with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn until now the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit? Why? Because you were attempting to do my work with dirty hearts. Now, let's, let's understand something here that, that there is a, con a direct connection God makes here in His Word between sin and physical and material want in your life. Now, I want to I pause here and make some sort of explanation. Let's be careful here. And this is why you need to really personalize this. Don't be looking around. Don't be assessing another person's life. There are all kinds of reasons why people are in material want or physical hurt that may not be related to sin. We have a classic example in the New Testament of the man born blind. Why was he born blind? Was it his parents' sin or was it his sin? And Jesus said it was neither. It was that the glory of the Lord might be displayed in his life. So it is critically important that you don't draw any conclusions or comparisons. This is a time for you to allow God to audit your life. Because the truth of the matter is, there is a connection between sin and trouble in your life. There is. God will not bless a life that's filled with sin. You can't come in here on Sunday carrying along all of your baggage and sin and expect that now God has cleaned it all up and you can continue to sin and walk out of here and you'll be fine just because you showed up here. Proximity to the Holy One does not make us holy. You can't touch your way to holiness, but you can touch your way to dirtiness. So the reason this is not advancing is because of their mission fitfulness. They needed to put their spiritual house in order or their material house would suffer. God is saying, test me on this. Look, at this is the way that you can't be a handler of sin and somehow hope that righteous work will bring personal cleanup or holy results. It, it just isn't going to work that way. But if you seek God's forgiveness and you own up to your sinfulness, 
and you resolve today that, that I am not going to say to God anymore, it's not time. I am not going to allow the work to be the glory, but I'm going to look for the glory of God. And if I finally come to the place where I said, God, I'm done with this sin. I, I am done with what I've been dragging along, the pet sins that I've been living with my whole life. And I realize that my life really isn't blessable. I realize that, that, that I'm actually a hindrance to the work of God. Because we need to understand something here. He's talking in, ten, in terms of community. We, we always think that, well, I, I might have some sins going on, but Lord, what does it matter? It's me. Okay, I'll live with the fact that I'm not blessable. I'll live with the fact that, that, that I'm not fit for mission. So what's the big deal at Calvary Baptist Church? The big deal is this. If you're one of us, you're all of us. If any one of us is carting around sin, it hinders the advance of all of us. We are all blessed together, and we are all held back together. The difference between a church that is advancing the building of God's house and one that isn't building, the, building God's house has everything to do with this. It's either they're saying it's not time, or their focus is on the project and not on the Lord, or they're carrying sin around in the, in the midst of the community. It's one of those, or maybe all of them. And so, beloved, if you want to join with my heart that is, that is being challenged by the heart of Haggai, by, by God's word, by God's heart, by the Lord Almighty, then, then we need to take every single one of these little sermons seriously. Are you making excuses? Am I making excuses? It's not the right time. It's always the right time to build the house of God. Am I, am I focusing on the work instead of the glory of God? Yeah, I think I am sometimes. We need to repent of that. Am I carrying around sin that I think I'm keeping to myself when God knows exactly what's going on in your life? He's asking the questions before you've even asked, answered them. Why isn't Oshawa reached for Christ? Maybe, maybe because we have determined in our hearts that I just don't, we just don't want to work that hard. We're afraid that it's just too much. Or maybe we don't really want to get rid of our sin because we're not convinced that God really means what he says. Do you really mean, God, that if I really got rid of my sin, if I tested you and if I, if I even made it public and tested and told my wife or told my, if I, if I said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, Lord, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for your blessing. Deep down inside, I think we think that God won't bless us. He's promised to puts his own honor, his own glory on the line. So stop making excuses. Stop making the ministry about the ministry. And stop sinning. Because it's time to build the house of God. Our Father, I thank you for your word to us. I thank you for how explicit the application is to our setting. Here we are getting used to worshiping the living God amidst the rubble of ruined lives and making excuses, carting sin around, comparing ourselves to other ministries. Forgive us, Lord. And might this be the start in our lives that it was for them when they got to work. Let us get to work, God. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I am not pitching anything material today. 
I'm not asking to build a bigger church. I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking for anything except the souls of lost people. To build the church of Jesus Christ. To advance the cause of his radiant bride. That our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our country could come to know the Jesus we know and love and who has given himself for us. That we might be rescued. Not to keep it a secret, but to claim it and proclaim it from everywhere with loud and exuberant voices. I think all of us this weekend have been reminded of how brief life can be. And there are thousands of people in this city who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And we have been concentrating, and rightly so, on making disciples. And I think God is doing amazing work in our congregation. God is doing an amazing work in your hearts. But there's a word in front of making disciples. And it says, go and make disciples. God has been burdening my heart and the heart of our team for quite some time, and more so right now. Would you pray with us about what the next steps are in terms of a passion for the lost? We have it, but what are we going to do about it? As God works over our hearts and our leadership and what we need to do and what's the next, the next messages that God has for us, I think are going to come out of Advancing God's church beyond ourselves. So let's pray about that. Let's really seek the Lord with passion and fervor. There are many lost people. And we have a great message. And God is with us. So let's build His church. Our Father, I pray. I pray for us. You have more. We've been saying it's not time. You have a responsibility and we've been saying maybe it's not enough. You have withheld blessings and we have held on to our sins. So I'm praying, oh God, that today, like Israel of old, we'll get to work. It is time, right now. The mission is the glory of the Lord. That's our focus. And we need to be blessable. We need, dare not risk our own lives and the lives of our city because of our selfishness and sinfulness. Oh God, for Jesus' sake I pray, amen.